The first epistle of Peter is written exhorting believers to remain faithful while scattered and experiencing suffering amid a hostile world. To that end, Peter encouraged them to remember that though scattered in suffering, their hope remained. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, Peter outlined the source of their hope, the triune God. The believer's hope originates in the Father's foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, and the Son's sprinkled blood. As Peter continues to write, telling believers that they are blessed and have a reason to rejoice. Imagine telling someone going through hard times to rejoice because they are blessed. For most, it's the last thing they'd want to hear. Some of his readers were facing martyrdom for their faith. Others were being treated unjustly by employers and spouses because of their faith. Nevertheless, Peter will demonstrate that believers are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because they have a living hope, inexpressible and glorious joy, and the Old Testament prophecies. So let's take our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-12, through 12, and examine how we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials. We are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have a living hope. We have a living hope. We're going to see this in chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Let's begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to begin with hope's foundation. And hope's foundation is God's mercy. God's mercy. The verbal adjective blessed is used only eight times in the New Testament and always refers to God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 and Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase is a reflection of the Jewish phrase, Blessed be, that was used any time one mentioned the name of God. Psalm 41 verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. You can see it also in Psalm 72.18, Psalm 89.52, and Psalm 106.48. That God is blessed means that He is worthy of praise by His people. And this praiseworthy God is none other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ in relationship to Jesus' humanity. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in relationship to Jesus' deity. And thus Peter denotes the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, one human and the other divine, without any loss of either nature. Peter refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. The term Jesus means Yahweh saves, while the title Christ refers to his messianic calling. Regarding the term Lord, Robert Mount states, quote, To call Jesus Lord is to declare that he is God. And since he is God, he is the sovereign one, and he has the right to reign over everyone. Furthermore, the possessive use of our in the phrase our Lord Jesus Christ evidences that believers are, can call Jesus' God and Father, 
their father and God. Listen to the words of John 20 and verse 17. Jesus said to her, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. The reason why God is worthy of praise is that he has caused us to be born again. The term born again, anaginao, comes from two Greek words, ana meaning again, and ganao meaning to beget. Hence the term means to beget again, to rebirth, to regenerate. God is to be praised because he has regenerated, rebirthed, believers. Now more specifically, it's God the Holy Spirit that causes this new birth. Titus 3.5, He saved us according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. John 3.6, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Hence, being born again is to be born from above. And the instrument by which the Holy Spirit accomplishes this new birth or regeneration is the Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. That the Word of God is the Holy Spirit's instrument in regenerating believers necessitates the importance of preaching. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now the regeneration of believers is based upon God's great mercy. God's mercy is the demonstration of his kindness to those in distress, irrespective of whether or not they deserve it. Romans 9, 15 to 16 and 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now indeed, Peter was well versed in God's mercy after falling into the sin of denial, only to be restored to his apostleship by the very one whom he denied. It is God's mercy which cancels the debt of sin through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 9.23 And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Through regeneration, we have been given a living hope. And this hope is not a wishful thinking, but an eager, confident expectation centered on the triune God. That this hope is living, it's a living hope, means that it is active and lively. It's not a passive hope that someone might do something. Instead, it's an active hope that knows that the triune God is doing something. What God has done is saved us through His foreknowledge, the Spirit's ministry of sanctification, and the Son's sprinkled blood. What God is doing is sustaining scattered and suffering believers by guaranteeing their future resurrection and glorification through the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ. 
Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what God has done is saved us. What God is doing is sustaining us, those scattered and suffering. And what God will do is give us as His children an inheritance. Now that brings us to 1 Peter 1, 4. Verse 3 was hope's foundation, God's mercy. Again, we can, we're blessed and we're rejoicing amid suffering, amid trials because... We have a living hope. Verse 3 is hope's foundation, which is God's mercy. Verse 4 is hope's object and inheritance. To obtain, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. See, the object of our living hope is an inheritance. And this inheritance is related to the eternal promise that God will give to His people. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Believers are predestined to be adopted by God, and this adoption guarantees that each of us receives an inheritance. Now, typically, the receiving of an inheritance requires the death of an individual who willed the inheritance. Hebrews 9, 16, and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives." However, our inheritance, we receive our inheritance not because of Christ's death, but His resurrection. Being scattered and suffering, Peter's original readers often had lost everything. They had nothing and expected nothing. However, despite their current situation, they had hope, an active hope, that they had an inheritance awaiting them in heaven. Peter uses four terms here to describe this inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and reserved in heaven. First, the inheritance is imperishable. That is, it is incapable of decay or destruction. Second, the inheritance is undefiled. That is, it is unpolluted, unstained, unsoiled, and undefiled by sin. Third, the inheritance will not fade away. Used only here in 1 Peter 1.4, the term means that it will not lose its beauty unlike a flower past its peak. It is free from the damaging effects of time. Fourth, the inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Reserved is to guard or to keep safe. Therefore, our inheritance is kept safe in heaven beyond the reach of the destructive forces of a hostile world. So, we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have a living hope. Hope's foundation is God's mercy. Hope's object is an inheritance. 
And now notice hope's protection, God's power. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Regardless of growing hostility against them, Peter assures believers of being protected by the power of God. Protected is a military term meaning to be guarded by the military. That you and I as believers need guarding implies that we are under attack. Paul uses this term in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind. The terms in the present tense indicating that this keeping guard over is ongoing. As well, it's in the passive voice, meaning that the protection is from an external source. We are not protecting ourselves amid the hostility. Our protection comes from the power of God. Now, while the provision of protection is available, we must lay hold of it through faith. In writing of the Christian's armor, Paul says, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield or military guard is there in the hour of hostility, but we must take it by faith. Now, both Peter and Paul are dealing here with the doctrine of God's providence and human responsibility. Within God's providence, He has promised to protect us. But, we must employ the faith in the fight against Satan and his demonic horde. That's our responsibility. We need not fret that God's protection might falter or fail. Peter affirms that God's protection will be available until, quote, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The term salvation in the Greek is anarthrous, meaning it lacks a definite article. This means that it's not salvation in the sense of redemption from sin and deliverance from the lake of fire. Instead, the term salvation is being used here as a synonym for the inheritance. Peter affirms that God's protection will be available until our inheritance is ready to be revealed. The inheritance is ready, that is, wholly prepared for immediate action. God is not in the process of setting aside an inheritance for us. He has already set it aside for us as his heirs. Also note the phrase to be revealed means to disclose something previously unknown. Currently we are unable to plumb the depths of our inheritance. However, in the last times, a reference to the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, God will make us his children know our inheritance experientially. Until that time, God's power will protect us no matter where we are scattered nor what we are suffering. We are blessed and rejoicing in trials because we have a living hope. It is founded on God's mercy. Its object is our inheritance and its protection is God's power. Secondly, we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have inexpressible and glorious joy inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 6, 1 Peter 1, verse 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, 
which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, being a believer does not exempt us from grief, particularly when distressed by various trials. Peter points out, however, that because we are protected by God's power, i.e., in this, he says, we can then greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice, or to be overjoyed, is an outward expression of joy. Interestingly, this term is not found in secular Greek usage. The regular usage of this term is the New Testament. And the biblical usage of this term, then, indicates that this joy is divine. Now, not only can we be overjoyed amid suffering because of God's power, but we can be overjoyed in knowing that the suffering is for a little while or only for a short time. Though the duration of the suffering is unknown, it will be temporary. Compared to eternity, the length of our suffering is brief. Note the phrase, if necessary, there in, in uh, uh, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. That indicates that God has a purpose for our suffering. That God has a purpose is indicative of the fact that it is God who ordains the trials. Now remember, while God tests us, he does not tempt us to sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But God's purpose is to try us, and God's purpose in suffering is the proof of your faith. Proof refers to a test by which something is proven. In the New Testament era, this term was used to describe the process of removing alloys from a metal such as gold. The gold is heated with fire until it begins to melt and drain away from the alloys, i.e. impurities. After the alloys are removed, the gold can be determined to be pure and genuine. And pure gold was more precious or had more monetary value than unrefined gold. Compared to gold which is perishable, faith is everlasting. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So faith, hope, love are eternal. Gold, though it can be pure and genuine, will perish. Similarly, trials are the means by which we are tested by fire to determine the purity and genuineness of our faith. As the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, states, The flame will not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Tested is the verbal form of proof. So notice here in our text where it says, So that the proof of your faith, the word proof there, 
And then the word test it, when it goes on to say, even though tested by fire, it's the same term. One's the noun, one's the verb of the same term. God tested the faith of Abraham when he commanded him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. God tested the faith of Job by permitting Satan to attack and afflict him. And the faith that passes the test will be rewarded. Abraham was rewarded with the provision of a ram in place of Isaac and the commendation of Yahweh. Genesis twenty-two twelve. he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Job was rewarded with a latter life better than his early life. Job 42.12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Believer, what fiery trial are you going through? For some of you, it may be the fact that you're scattered. You can't gather right now, and, 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 and that is, is, is a trial. That's really trying your faith. That's testing you. And now we have to ask the question, why has God brought that into your life? Obviously, God's purpose in bringing this into your life isn't for you to run away from it, isn't for you to try to come up with some way to get around it, but God's purpose in your life is to purify some aspect of your faith. Now, I can't tell you what needs to be purified in your faith. Only you can determine that before a holy God. You know, maybe some of you are being tried by sundry and various sufferings. Again, God brought those sufferings into your life for a reason, for a purpose. Not because necessarily you're a bad person or not because necessarily you're in sin, but God brought that suffering into your life to do something to your faith. That something is purify your faith. To prove the genuineness of your faith. So rather than running from our scattering, rather than running from our suffering, we ought to buck up and say, wait a minute, God. You're bringing me through this fiery torment for a purpose. God, what's your purpose? Just like Abraham, just like Job, God's got a purpose for you. And when we go through the fiery trial... We will be rewarded in praise and glory and honor. Praise means to be approved or commended. Glory refers to a state of reputation. Honor is a state of being valued or being in a position of distinction. And these rewards will be dispensed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ. Regarding the trying of one's faith, George Mueller once said, The Lord gives faith for the very purpose of trying it for the glory of his own name, and for the good of him who has it. And by the very trial of our faith, we not only obtain the blessing to our own souls by becoming the better acquainted with God, if we hold fast our confidence in him, but our faith also, by the exercise, strengthened, and so it comes that if we walk with God in any great measure of uprightness of heart, the trials of faith will be greater and greater. Peter returns to the topic of joy in verse 8. He begins by stating that his readers have not seen Jesus. 
Though having never seen Jesus in the past, they love him. Word love there is agape. Agape love is sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. John Chrysostom states that agape love is no common love, but that which cements us together and makes us cleave inseparably to one another and affects as great and as perfect a union as though it were between limb and limb. As well, Peter's readers do not see Jesus now. Though they presently do not see Jesus, they believe in him. The word believe here, pistuo, is to place faith in someone or something. Here, Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. But it must be emphasized that believing must be enjoined to repenting. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith are dual sides of the same coin. Repentance on one side is a change of behavior, confessing and forsaking sin. Denial of oneself is evidence of repentance. Faith on the other side is placing our confidence in the work of Christ, his death, his burial, and resurrection. Surrender to Jesus' lordship evidences our faith. And anyone who refuses to obey the Son's call to repent and believe will burn eternally in the lake of fire. Now Peter's purpose... And using the concussive clause, though, when he says, though you have not seen Jesus, though you do not see Jesus now, is to commend his readers. Peter still remembers the words of Jesus to Thomas following the resurrection. John twenty twenty nine. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. These second generation messianic believers lived by faith, not by sight. Now, because they loved Jesus and believed in him, they are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. If we love Jesus and believe in Jesus, we will be filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy is not based on our circumstances. It's based on our love for Jesus and belief in him. Trials may cause grief, but they cannot remove our joy. Notice it's inexpressible joy. Inexpressible, only used here in the New Testament, meaning a joy that defies expression or description. That is, it cannot be explained by human words. Full of glory means that even now, we have the kind of joy that we will ha have in heaven. We're awaiting our glorification, but our joy is already glorified. And we have a reason to rejoice greatly. The reason is that we are obtaining or surely receiving the outcome of our faith. In other words, the outcome of our faith is guaranteed. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we have this inexpressible and glorious joy because the outcome or the goal of our faith is guaranteed. And the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. The moment we repent of our sin and believe the gospel, we receive salvation. But our salvation is not complete. There is a present reality and a future expectation to salvation. For example, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. But Romans 13.11 says, Salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption. 
Ephesians 4.30 says you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 2.6, he has seated us with him in heavenly places. Colossians 3.1 says keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Romans 8.15, you've received a spirit of adoption. Romans 8.23, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption. Romans 8.30, whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8.17, we may also be glorified with him. So there's a present reality to salvation, but there's also a future expectation. But we do not need to fear that our salvation will be lost because God has promised to bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it will be made complete at the rapture, when mortality puts on immortality, and corruption puts on incorruption, just as foretold in 1 Corinthians 15.52-53. Inexpressible and glorious joy cannot be contrived or fabricated. It does not come from an abundance of stuff. It is the possession of everyone whose Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. And such joy transcends the trials of this life, especially knowing that God brings us through trials for the purpose of perfecting and purifying us. So as believers, we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials. We are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have a living hope a hope founded on God's mercy, a hope whose object is our inheritance, and whose hope is protected by God's power. And we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have inexpressible and glorious joy. And finally, we are blessed and rejoicing amid trials because we have the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 10, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 to 12 and to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preaching the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now the term salvation in verse 10 links back to verse 9. In verse 9, the goal of salvation in the future provides inexpressible, glorious joy amid present suffering. In verse 10, Peter looks back at the revelation of salvation in the Old Testament through the prophets. Through the ministry of prophecy, the prophets were ministering to you and me, the recipients of the gospel. Though scattered and suffering in a hostile world, we enjoy the blessings of the Old Testament prophecies. Now the prophets refer to all of the Old Testament prophets from Moses to Malachi. Luke 24, 26, 27 says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The Old Testament prophets foretold of the grace that would come. And this grace includes all aspects of our redemption. From Christ's incarnation through his reign. 
and how the prophets didn't always understand the meaning of their prophecies. Instead of doing what many believers do when they come across a problematic scripture, they chose to, quote, make careful searches and inquiries seeking to know the meaning of the prophetic word. Careful searches means to discover something in a diligent and exacting manner. Inquiry referred to investigating something in great detail over a long period. Seeking to know is to consider in detail the meaning of something. And Daniel is an example of a prophet making careful searches and inquiries in order to comprehend his prophecies. Daniel 8.15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel 12.8, as for me, I heard but could not understand. You and I, believer, we need to stop neglecting the Old Testament and follow the example of Daniel and the other prophets. Please do not give up in frustration. Instead, study it diligently. Study it in great detail. Study it for long periods. How many of you are malnourished and impoverished spiritually because you've neglected two-thirds of the Scripture? Notice the prophets received their prophecies through the Spirit of Christ within them. In other words, their prophecies were not of their invention or genius. Instead, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moved by the Holy Spirit means that they were led, directed, or carried along by the Holy Spirit. This moving is what is known as the superintending or divine directing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit superintending over the prophets allowed them to record the prophecies in their styles, yet guarantee that God's word was, in the words of Paul ends, quote, authoritative, trustworthy, and free from error in the original autographs. The prophets knew that the Redeemer was coming, but they did not know what person or time would come. Who the Redeemer would be, they did not know, though they knew he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Though there are prophecies regarding the time of the Messiah's first advent, they could not reconcile the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. Thus, they did not know the time of the establishment of his kingdom. Notice the phrase, the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. It's a very common preaching theme throughout the New Testament. We saw it already in Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Acts 26, 22, and 23. Having obtained help from God, I stand in this day testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. You can see this again in Acts 2, 14 to 26, Acts 3, 11 to 26, Acts 13, 16 to 41. Now the sufferings of Christ occurred during his first advent and included all the pain he experienced between his incarnation and death. The glories of Christ include his resurrection, ascension, resumption of glory, enthronement in heaven, the second coming and millennial reign. And as they searched, inquired, and considered their prophecies, the Holy Spirit revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. 
Matthew 13, 16, and 17, Christ said, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, or hear what you hear and did not hear it. The Old Testament prophets were not ministering to their generation, but to those to whom the apostles preached the gospel. Peter uses the phrase by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to reference Pentecost when the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers so that they could bear witness of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel and the resulting salvation is so magnificent that the angels long to look into these things. The word long is to have an intense desire for something. To look means to gaze at with an outstretched neck. It implies exerting effort to see something. Your salvation, my salvation is so great, so magnificent, that the angels in heaven are straining their neck with an intense desire to know and understand the manifold wisdom of God. Ephesians 3.10 So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Rulers and authorities in heavenly places are angels. Hence the angels rejoice over everyone who comes to salvation. Luke 15.10 There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, though we are scattered, though we may be suffering, we have the blessing of a magnificent salvation as revealed in the Old Testament by the prophets and inquired of by angels that this hostile world can never take away. Returning to the preaching of the gospel which began on Pentecost, Peter preached the first sermon of the church from the Old Testament. In Acts 2, 16-21, he's quoting Joel 2, 28-31. In Acts 2, 25-28, he's quoting Psalm 16, 8-16. In Acts 2, 30, he's quoting Psalm 89, 3. In Acts 2, 31, he's quoting Psalm 16, 10. And in Acts 2, 34, he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. If we take a moment and go through uh, the book of Acts we will see that every sermon preached by the early church was from an enormous amount of Old Testament text. Consider Peter's second sermon preached in Acts 3, 22-25. He was preaching and quoted Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18 and Genesis 22:18. When Peter and John preached their sermon before the leaders in Acts 4:10, they preached from Psalm 118:22. Peter and John's sermon preached after they were released from prison in Acts 4, 24 through 26. They preached Exodus 20, verse 11 and Psalm 2, 1. In Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 3 through verse 50, he preached from Genesis 2, 1, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 17, 8, Genesis 15, 3, Exodus 3, 12, Exodus 1, 8, Exodus 2, 2, 14 and 15, Exodus 3, 1 and 6, Exodus 3, 5, 7, and 8, Exodus 2, 14, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18, Exodus 32, 1, and 23, Amos 5, 27 and 25, and 27, and Isaiah 66, 1, and 2. When Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 32 to 33, he preached from Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. When Paul was preaching at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 22 to 47, he preached from 1 Samuel 13, 14, Psalm 2, 7, Isaiah 55, 3. Psalm 16.10, Habakkuk 1.5, Isaiah 42.6, and 49.6. 
When James preached during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 16 and 17, he preached from Amos 9, 11 and 12 and Jeremiah 12, 15. When Paul preached before the Jewish leaders in Acts 23, verse 5, he preached from Exodus 22 and 28. And when Paul was in prison at Rome in Acts 28, 26 and 27, he preached from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. See, the recipients of the gospel receive the gospel through the preaching of the Old Testament prophets. And this present generation of believers, you and me, we're too, we too are the recipients of the gospel. We too are scattered and suffering in a hostile world. And that the Old Testament prophets are presently ministering to you and me underscores the importance of teaching the Old Testament as noted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The study of the Old Testament is a blessing to you and me as its many examples give us encouragement and hope to persevere through difficult days. How many times were God's people scattered throughout the Old Testament? How many or how often did God's people suffer throughout the Old Testament? And though they were scattered and though they suffered, by faith they persevered awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of God. Furthermore, the Old Testament speaks of Christ's suffering and the glory that followed. And like Christ, you and me, believer, our suffering is temporary, but after suffering, we will enjoy the glory that follows throughout all eternity. My friends, trials, suffering, persecution, they are all part of this life for us as believers. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3:12. Whatever hardship, believer, you're facing, you can praise God because you have the blessing of a living hope inexpressible and glorious joy, and the Old Testament prophecies. Now having these blessings doesn't mean that we can go through hardships with a smile on our face. Not often. Some believers put on a phony smile and say, Oh, praise the Lord, while in their hearts they're miserable and not praising the Lord. Being blessed and rejoicing does not mean that you and I have to deny our grief and pain. That's neither biblical nor emotionally healthy. If the triune God experiences pain and grief, who are you and me as believers to deny our pain and grief? It's possible to experience grief and pain and at the same time have genuine joy. Acts 5.41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, have nothing yet possessing all things. Hebrews 2.11 All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We can now rejoice, believer, to know that God is going to use our pain and our grief to refine our faith and make us more like Jesus. Are you blessed amid your trials. Listen, if you're a child of God, you are. You've got a living hope. 
based on God's mercy, founded on His mercy. Its object is, is, an, is an inheritance, and it's protected by the power of God. And you can rejoice, believer. You've been given inexpressible and glorious joy because your inheritance is secured and you are going to receive it someday. And you are blessed and you can rejoice amid trials because you've got two-thirds of the Bible filled with illustrations of those who are scattered and those who suffered and yet admitted, amidst it all, they rejoiced and kept the faith. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for the precious words you've given to us that, Lord, we are indeed blessed in amid trials and we can rejoice amid trials, Father. And it's all because of you. It's because of your rich mercy. You've graced us with it, Father. You've done it for us. You protect it. We can't lose it. Lord, yes, I need to lay hold of it. You, we all need to lay hold of it by faith. But, Father, it's there for our taking. Lord, help us to have a biblical perspective on trials, on suffering, on pain, on grief. Father, let's not go through this life, allow us not to go through this life denying those things, ignoring those things, acting like they aren't happening, but rather, Father, we might embrace them biblically and see them for what they are. You've brought them into our life for a reason and a purpose. And Father, we each need to determine for ourselves what is the purpose that you have in it. What are you trying to do? Ultimately, you're trying to purify and perfect us. But what that may be in the short term, only each of us can know before you. So help us to that end to know these things. Father, I thank you that the sufferings of life are not without purpose. And that, Lord, you have a reason in it all. We thank you for that. In your son's precious and holy name, we give thanks. Amen.